Our Old Testament lesson this morning comes from Psalm 30, verses 1 through 12. It can be found on page 444. Our pew Bibles are 864 in the large print. Psalm 30, all 12 verses. Before we read, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day that you have made and for your word that you have given to us. God, we pray that as we hear your word now, that you would help us not merely to hear it, but to really listen, to really pay attention. God, that we would feed on your word, knowing that we don't live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from you. So we ask that you would, um, that you would open our ears and help us to truly listen. That by your word and by your spirit, you would change us from the inside out into the people that you have made us to be in relationship with you through Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Psalm 30. A psalm, a song, for the dedication of the temple of David. I will exalt you, Lord, for you lifted me out of the depths and did not let my enemies gloat over me. Lord, my God, I called to you for help, and you healed me. You, Lord, brought me up from the realm of the dead. You spared me from going down to the pit. Sing the praises of the Lord, you his faithful people. Praise his holy name. For his anger lasts only a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. Weeping may stay for the night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. When I felt secure, I said, I will never be shaken. Lord, when you favored me, You made my royal mountain stand firm. But when you hid your face, I was dismayed. To you, Lord, I called. To the Lord, I cried for mercy. What is gained if I am silenced, if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it proclaim your faithfulness? Hear, Lord, and be merciful to me. Lord, be my help. You turned my wailing into dancing. You removed my sackcloth and clothed me with joy that my heart may sing your praises and not be silent. Lord my God, I will praise you forever. Turning then to our New Testament lesson, John 21, verses 1 through 19, which can be found on page 881 in our pew Bibles, or 1687 in our large print pew Bibles. John 21 1 through 19. This is a story I actually paraphrased uh, a few weeks ago as we were starting the book of 1 Peter. So, uh, as we look at some of the things that happened in the life of Peter, especially his interactions with Jesus. John 21, 1 to 19. This is after Jesus' resurrection. It says, Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, We'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat. But that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, Friends, haven't you any fish? 
No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciple followed in the boat, the other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Now we actually stop just short there of one of the best uh, none of your business passages in the whole Bible. If you want to read a little farther there, it's quite nice. Um, but we move on this morning to 1 Peter 1, 17 to 2, 3. our sermon text this morning. Let me read to you the whole of this passage. Peter writes, Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, But with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect, he was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fall. 
but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There is a big difference between hearing and listening. And it is really, you may have had this experience where you have heard a, uh, a song many, many times, but have never actually listened to the words. And then you stop and you listen to the words. It's fun. Sometimes you hear the words that you've heard a thousand times, and then you really listen to them carefully and you go, well, this is a stupid song. That's a really catchy tune, but my goodness, there's just nothing to that. And then there are other songs you've heard a thousand times, and you start listening to the words, and you go, wow, that has so much more meaning packed in there than I thought you could pack into a song. And it changes the way that you then interact with that song from then on. I want us not to just hear the word, but to really listen to it. Peter as he's been talking uh, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces, actually said, in what we looked at last week, therefore with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you have when you lived in ignorance, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy with minds that are fully alert and sober. We set our hope on the grace to be given. But not only that, with minds that are fully alert, we get to think through the things that God has told us, including this. This first verse here, 17, says, Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. Let me tell you, that one verse has so many possible misunderstandings in it. We could spend the entire morning on just that verse. I'm not going to. Well, we might. But if we do, it'll be an accident. (laughs) Instead, I just want to highlight that word fear right there at the very end. And the reason I want to highlight this word, because it says we're supposed to be living out our time in fear. We go, oh no. That's just exactly what the rest of the culture does. Listen for it. If you haven't noticed this, this is what the culture uh, that we live in right now does great business in is turning up, stirring up, spreading fear. Listen for it. The next political speech you hear by anybody, listen to see if there's something said in there that tries to uh, get people to be afraid. Someone, something, some group, whatever. Listen to it on any uh, nightly newscast. Read for it in the newspaper. But you know who really does the best at this, where it comes through the most clearly, I think? It's not even in the newscasts, but in the promos for the newscast. You know what I'm talking about? Where they say, you know, it'll be 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and they'll have the thing that comes on and says, you thought you were uh, feeding your children healthy food. You were trying to be a good parent. But by feeding them the wrong brand of broccoli, will you make their arm fall off? Ah! We're not going to tell you until 6 o'clock. Ah! 
and you spend the next two hours in a panic. What brand of broccoli have I been feeding my children? By the way, I use an intentionally ridiculous example so no kids are going to be like, I can't eat that. That's going to make my arm fall off. Uh, <laughs> but they do stuff that's almost as ridiculous. And then you finally watch the news program and you've been just terrified the whole time. And you finally watch it and they wait to the very end of the program. They keep teasing you through the whole thing. And they get to the very end and they talk to a doctor who says, yeah, that can't happen. And you go, oh, whew. <laughs> the end. But... If they can stir up the fear, they can get you to watch. And the fear is a great motivator, and it gets used a lot. And so that's the culture we sort of live in, and we know what that's like to live in this sort of culture of regenerated fear. And so it's easy to read this verse and almost think that Peter's telling us, that, well, that's just what you do. You just live as terrified people all the time. You go, well, this is that's horrible. <laughs> but that's not what he's saying. And we know that's not what he's saying because he modifies it with a very important word. He says we are to live out, live out our time as foreigners here in reverent fear. Now, reverent fear is very different than just fear in general. Fear in general is the kind that we live in that makes uh, even our children, unfortunately, know the words like terrorism and terrorist which have the word terror right in them. And they know them. That's just a part of the world we live in. But reverent fear is not just being afraid of something that has more power than you, of something that you can't control. That's certainly a part of it. But reverent fear is one that doesn't run away and hide. One that doesn't fall over and play dead, but one that bows down and worship. Proverbs tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And if you look at another wisdom book, the book of Job, when you get to the very end of it, after Job has gone through an awful lot of not only suffering, but kind of talking through it with his friends and trying to figure out what in the world is going on. And you get to the very end of the book, and God shows up. And God says, and says, and the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. And you know the first thing he says to him? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Uh, can you imagine? If you've been talking about God and saying, I don't understand why he's doing this, what's going on? The next thing he said is, would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Uh, here's the point. Well, this may make your knees knock, as well as should. When God reveals himself to Job, it is not just to terrify him, but to show him who it is that he's dealing with, that he would worship him. This is what was talking about in Proverbs when it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Knowing that God is God and that we are not. That he is more powerful than we are. That he is completely outside of our control. But, and see everything I've said so far, you're like, yeah, that still sounds terrifying. But wait. In the book, With, we've been going through on Wednesday nights. Sky Jatani points something out that happened when Jesus healed a man who had been possessed with demons. And it says, The townspeople had seen Jesus' power and were frightened by him. 
Someone with such power could do incalculable damage. He might take over our village, enslave our families, take our wealth. Who knows what such a powerful person might do to us? And so, afraid, they begged Jesus to leave. But the man whom Jesus had healed had experienced more than his power. He had also seen his goodness. The healed man had a different vision of Jesus and therefore a different response. And he wanted to be with Jesus. And so he asked if he could go with him. Do you see the difference? The power is the same. But the character of the heart is different. If we believe that God is all-powerful, but that he is mean or uncaring, then terror would be the right response. But if we believe that God is all-powerful and that he is loving and that he is good, then we bow in worship and we live out our lives in a reverent fear. So how do we know which it is? Keep reading. Verse 18. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life. By the way, can I just say how beautiful a thing it is that... Peter takes the most valuable things on the earth and says, it wasn't with such worthless things like those that you're redeemed. (laughs) The most valuable things we have. And he's like, yeah, it wasn't something like that kind of garbage. Things that will pass away one day. He says, it was was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He is the one who is the lamb. If you were at the Seder meal a couple weeks ago, you know that this is what was to be sacrificed. This is the one, the lamb that was to be killed in place of the son. And Peter says, this is who Jesus is. He is the one who died in our place. He is the one who is perfect. He is the one who is most valuable. And he died for us. And why? He says, so that redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. Peter wrote this almost 2,000 years ago, talking about the empty way of life that these people had had handed down to them from their ancestors. Anybody here have an empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors? If you were raised to put, to center your life around anything besides God himself, that will lead to emptiness. And here's the other part about that. You know, science tells us that nature abhors a vacuum, right? And so the emptiness is always trying to suck things into it. We use that, you know, vacuum cleaners, suck all that in. But I have to wonder if that also applies in a spiritual way where the emptiness is all the time trying to suck us back in. But Peter says, this kind of emptiness and this empty way of life, no matter who we learned that from, Jesus came to free us from that, to redeem us from that, to set us free from that kind of thing. He said, the thief comes only to kill kill and steal and destroy. I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. This is what Jesus has come for, and he has died for us. Now, here's the thing. We asked the question earlier, how do we know the character of the heart of God? Because we look to Jesus. 
and we see that Jesus has done this for us. If we know that Jesus has not only used his power for us, but even given up power for us, then we know we can completely trust the heart of God. We can taste and know his goodness. And therefore, we can live in a reverent fear. It says, now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere hope, so you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all people are like grass, and their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. The command here is to love each other. To love each other. But to love each other deeply and out of the love that we've already received. Here's the thing. This kind of love that it's talking about is a kind of love that has not anything to do with our feelings towards each other, but the actual working for the good of others. Think about it in these terms. This is why Paul's able to say love is patient, love is kind, it is not envy, it is not boast, it is not proud, it is not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Think about it like this. How a parent, a loving parent, takes care of a newborn baby. Patience and kindness. Envying, not boasting. Think about the way that a child of an aging parent with Alzheimer's lovingly cares for their needs. Patiently. Keeping no record of wrongs. This is the kind of love where it most clearly shows the love of God. Why? Because a lot of our loves that we have, the way that we take care of each other's needs, is a cultural kind of love that says, I will scratch your back, I will take care of you right now, and then you'll turn around and take care of me when I need it. But when you care for somebody who cannot care for you, when you care for somebody who has needs that they can't meet on their own, this is when we're showing the love of God. Because this is what he did for us. Taking care of our needs when we couldn't take care of them on our own. We have all been there as babies physically. And I think this is the reason why this born-again kind of language comes through again and again and again throughout the Bible. is because it's reminding us that we are as helpless as babies and he had to do everything for us. And we're dependent completely on him as he meets our needs. And as we realize that, he says, Now, understanding your role as babies, who have this done for you, go do that for other people. Live like that. It says, this is the word that was preached to you. Okay. Then we get to the real, the real kicker here. That's these last few verses where we get into that list of uh, things we're not supposed to do. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Why should we rid ourselves of malice? Malice, of course, is wanting the bad things to happen to other people. We talked a few weeks ago about how we rejoice with those who rejoice. We are to mourn with those who mourn. This comes from Romans 12. We talked about how there are some times where we are supposed to mourn for others who are rejoicing. But you know, as Christians, we are never to do the opposite of that. We are never to rejoice that someone else is mourning. If we find ourselves doing that, we need to take ourselves back to the cross again. 
We should never be in a position where we are wanting something bad to happen to somebody else because they deserve it. <laughs> if that's how we're feeling, we've got to go back to the cross and say, but what do I deserve? And how, would, how did God deal with me? So we need to rid ourselves of malice. We need to rid ourselves of all deceit and hypocrisy. Two different forms of lying, basically. Jesus says, uh, I mean, he deals with things like hypocrisy in the Sermon on the Mount. He deals, uh, deceit is covered even in the Ten Commandments itself. But Jesus, when uh, talking to Pilate, said that everyone on the side of truth listens to me. We talked a little bit about hearing and listening earlier. Jesus said, everyone on the side of truth listens to me. So if we are dealing in deceit, if we are dealing in hypocrisy, who are we listening to? Everyone on the side of truth listens to Jesus. Envy. This one's covered in actually it's covered in 1 Corinthians 13 when Paul's talking about what love is. And here we see all these things that are the opposite of love. And he says, uh, love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy. And of course it doesn't envy. Because if you are seeking to do to work for the good of others, you can't do that if what you're really after is what you can take from them. Love does not envy. This says, get rid of that. And get rid of slander of every kind. This is speaking bad things about other people. This is almost like a national pastime. I was reminded recently that in the uh, book, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which is just silliness all the way through, that there was a, uh, a spaceship that people designed. They wanted it to be the fastest ship ever. And so they designed a ship that would be powered by bad news because nothing travels faster than bad news. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, that's also the way it works, not only in outer space, but in small towns. And there is probably not a single one of us here that doesn't have at least five or six rumors about us going around in town that's not true. <laughs> Seriously. And in the same way you don't want anybody else spreading that, let's not be those who spread any of it. We need to be like the, uh, the judge when somebody comes to us and says, do you hear about so-and-so? That we can say to them, and how do you know this to be true? And if they say, well, I heard from... So- Inadmissible! <laughs> Throw it right out. We do not deal in that kind of thing. Oh, but it's so fun in a temporary sense. But it is so unloving and un-Christ-like and completely opposite of the life we've been called to. And here's the point of all these things. We read through this list and it's all this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. And it feels like we're just given a list of no's. By the way, there's a reason for that. Listen to the mother of a one-year-old. Because a two-year-olds, two-year-olds have one word that is the most important word to them, and it's the word why. Why, 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 why? You can't ever answer enough for them. But for a one-year-old, it sounds like a mom only knows one word. No, 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 no. <laughs> just following them around. No, 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 don't do that. Why? Because a one-year-old, as they're growing up and they're exploring this world and they're trying to figure out what things are good and what things are bad and what things are safe and what things are dangerous, choose wrong all the time. 
And it is up to the parents to say, no, don't touch that. No, don't pull the cat's tail. That's not good for the cat. It's not good for you either. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. This is how we have to frame all these commands that are negative in the Bible. When we think, again, back to the character of God and his heart for us, if we think of him, as somebody who is uh, powerful and mean, and so he says, I can tell you don't do those things because I can and just don't do them, and now you're miserable. That's not it. But if we think of him as uh, how he's revealed himself, who is for our good and who wants good for us, and when he says, no, don't do that, we need to be able to say, ah, okay. You're saying this for my own good, and therefore I will trust you in it even when I don't understand. And of course, pulls us right back to that when he says, like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. This is what the command is really all about. All the things that we've seen so far today, as we have uh, seen that we call on a father, one who is good, has revealed himself to us in his self-giving love for us. Who has exerted power on our behalf. Who has redeemed us from an empty way of life. And now offers us a life of fullness. This is how we can continue to trust him and grow up in the salvation that we have received. Let us, not only individually, but together, grow up in him. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.